0: A few months ago, Tim and I had the privilege and honor of being able to go on a Compassion um, event. We went to Uganda with a couple of other pastors, and we visited the Compassion um, centers in Uganda. And while we were there, we really just got to see the faces behind those pictures on the packages. And I'm telling you, it was life-changing. And so we had always wondered, you know, what happens with these kids when they come out of the program? And so today, for Compassion Weekend, we are just so blessed and honored to have Olive with us. She is from Uganda, and she has an amazing story, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear her story. Um, If you would, I would really like it if you could just open up in prayer for us.
1: Pawunwa, Wanamati Polo, New Ben Malane, K Merobin, Ginma Miro Kitty Vilobo, Machala Kitty Vipolo, Mewatin Chamawatin, Gong Balmewa, Machalawan Gonjama Balapotwa, Pete Wanyo Machwing, Ente Lawabotarach, Bendel, Kidet, Kideo, Ben Mary, Nina Mapotum, Amen. Thank you.
0: Amen, thank you. So, Olive, I would like for you to just share with us a little bit about your life before going into the Compassion Program. What was that like?
1: Before going into the Compassion Program, um, I was born to a Muslim father and a Christian mother in a small town called Apache. And I was born when my mother was in nursing school. And I'm the second born. My older sister is three years older than me. And I remember my mother just talking about this and My grandparents, my maternal grandparents had no idea my mom had children because my mom kept it a secret, but somehow somewhere they found out. And when my grandparents found out, they traveled on their bicycles and they picked me and Juliet. My grandfather received Christ after he came back from World War II and later on got training to become an Anglican pastor, and he was also the local chief. And so he didn't really want me and Juliet to be raised in a a Muslim home. And so they got us and they took us to their home in Muchwini Kitgum District. And um, we lived in a homestead that comprised of five huts, and it was shaped in the form of an ark. And in the middle of the homestead um, was a fireplace, which is a hole that is dug in the ground, and we used grass to start up the fire and firewood to keep it going. And then The fireplace was very, very important because that is where the neighboring homes would bring their children to listen to my grandfather teach the word of God. And I remember there was a lot of dancing around the fireplace and just memorizing of scripture. And for me, it was exciting because I would watch as the older kids remembered the memory verses from the nights before, and my grandfather would um, get treats and give them. And it was very exciting because the only time that we ever got, like, had candy was during Christmas time. So that was really special, that each night, if you remembered the memory verses, you got a treat. I was really too young to uh, remember, to memorize. I was very young, and I remember just being four, and that is when I was able to start memorizing Scripture. And I memorized my very first Psalm, which was Psalms 23, And it was very exciting, too, because then I was motivated to memorize more and more verses as more and more candy started flowing in. (laughs) And uh, I recall when I turned five, it was very, very exciting because I wanted to go to school. That is what I lived for. I wanted to go to school and learn how to speak English just like the other older kids in the neighborhood. Also, I was worried because if you have a family that had five children and two of them were girls and three of them were boys, regardless of their birth order, they would educate the boys first and then the girls would come, if that is, if there's money. Because in the end, a lot of girls were married off at a very young age. So the boys were the ones who had the privilege of having an education. But for me, this Friday was different. My grandfather said I had to pass a test, and if I passed this test, I was going to start school. And I remember standing in front of him, and the test involved me touching my opposite ear, just like this. Now I can do it. And uh, that time, I I didn't pass the test. My grandfather told me, you're not going to school. You're going to work in the fields with your grandmother. I was a little bit consoled because this was a Friday, so I had to send it to practice and make sure by Monday I passed this, this silly test. Didn't really know why, but my grandfather said the reason as to why I had to pass the test was um, affirmation that my, gra- my brain had grown to the point of comprehending what the teacher would teach, right? I remember Monday morning, I still tried to pass this test and I failed miserably. And we, me and my grandmother, we went to work in the fields, just weeding, weeding, weeding the whole day until about 3.30. The whole time, I was thinking about the beautiful stories that my friends were going to bring. Really had no idea things were going to change very, very quickly. Came back home, got the papyrus mats, and put them around the fireplace. Got my grandfather's chair and put it where normally it is, his Bible in the chair, and started the fireplace, just waiting for my friends to come. I was more so interested in the English words that they were going to teach me. So we waited at the fireplace. And then someone came to our home and said, the children were not coming that day. Because every parent that sent their child to school on Monday, they did not see their children again. Because an abduction happened that Monday. So every child that went to school that Monday was abducted. And they were being transported. They were walking towards the border of Sudan where there was a rebel camp, and these children were going to be trained to become child soldiers. So it was very clear that my failing this test was for a purpose. Even if I was old enough, I failed the test for my protection. God was able to protect me, and I wasn't among those that got captured. Now things began changing really very quickly, whereby the rebels now would come into the home, they'll kill the parents and take the children. But my grandfather's home was sort of a refuge where the rebels had not come. So all the families would come and seek refuge within my home. And it was very, very um, comforting to see my grandfather always sitting at the fireplace and praying over everybody. The women and children would be in my grandmother's hut and the men in my grandfather's hut. I remember this specific evening. There were about 70 children and uh, mothers, in my grandmother's hut. And my grandmother was sitting by the door and using her back to prop the door open. And I was sitting by her, fire, uh, by her feet. And we could see anybody that was coming in and out of the homestead. And so as we were there, just praying that nothing happens to anybody in the huts, within seconds, five rebels approached my home. And they met my grandfather at the fireplace, and they asked him, where is everyone? And he said, I don't know. And... Two of them began walking towards us. We could see them coming. At that moment, I knew it was over. I knew that everything was over for us. They came at the door, and one of them held on the latch of the door and began looking inside. He was literally like right here. I wanted to get up and run, but I froze. At the same time, I said, if I run, then the safety of everyone in the hut would be jeopardized. And I remember just praying to God and the two rebels looked at each other and they turned their backs towards us and they faced my, grandma, my grandfather and they walked towards him and they told him you're telling the truth there is no one in the hearts now for me it was eye opening I was listening I was witnessing something that had already happened in scripture God was able to save the Israelites during the Passover. And at that very moment, I became part of that Passover. God was able to shield everybody in the huts, and we were protected. But things changed very quickly, whereby the rebels now realized people were hiding in the huts, so they would come in, close the doors, and set the homes on fire. My grandmother had to make sure that all the grandchildren survived. And so she would line up these blankets in the corner of her hut and give instructions to go hide in the forest. I remember the very first night was really, really hard. I didn't really know what to do, but my grandfather and my grandmother's instructions were very clear, and they said, you have to go hide alone. I remember I grabbed my blanket.
0: And you were four years old at that time, right?
1: I grabbed my blanket, and I went and hid, and I didn't really want to get, it was about two miles away. I covered my head because I didn't want to get wet because it was drizzling a little bit. And I began hearing noises that was coming from around me. And I thought maybe these are wild animals. It didn't really bother me that much. But there was an intense noise that was coming from behind me. And as I turned to look back, the only thing that I could see were two eyes. And within seconds, I was surrounded by a big old python snake. And it began squeezing me. And I began saying, "Lord, please save me." I began confessing every little sin that I had at the time. <laughs> and I recall, remembering this memory, this story about Daniel in the lions den and how God was able to protect him, said, so "If God protected Daniel, then sure God can protect me." And I remember that psalm, Psalms 23. I began saying it out loud, "The Lord is my shepherd." And when I got to the end of it, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I could feel the snake release me and it just went on its way. At that very moment, I knew that everything that has breath listens to the voice of the creator. And that experience really... When I got back home, I didn't tell anybody. I did not tell anyone because as soon as I got back home, the only thing that I could see was ashes because our home was burnt to the ground. There was nothing left standing. I had to get my blanket. All my cousins, my grandfather and my grandmother, we had to start walking. We had to walk to a different place try to find safety. We walked for weeks, not knowing where we were going. I remember being so thirsty for water and very hungry for food. And I remember a moment when I was very thirsty for water and there was really this paddle on the road and I drank that paddle. And I ended up contracting guinea worms and my feet were so swollen that my grandmother had to carry me on her back. And I also remember my grandmother had this bag that she kept with her, which had like oranges and mangoes that she picked along the way. It was very heartbreaking for her to decide which of the grandchildren was going to get these fruits, and at what time, because you only got one in a 24-hour period. And I remember my grandfather looking at me, and he told me that I had transformed to a girl that he could barely recognize. I was looking down most of the time. And I was sad most of the time. No smiles, terrified. And he told me he didn't want me to remember these bad things that have happened because God had a different purpose for me. I did not believe her because it almost felt like this was going on forever. He told me, you have to go to the capital city. You have to go and live with your mother and he put me on a bus to go live with my mother.
0: So you had never met your mom before?
1: So um, my mom used to come to the village, but everybody called her Aunt Dorothy, and that is what I called her, because we all- always called our grandparents mom and dad. So when my grandfather told me, you are going to the capital City to be with your mom, it was a little bit confusing, but just anything to make me safe, I got on that bus and uh, arrived at the Capta City.
0: So how did that, going to live with your mom, how did that change your life and how did that affect you?
1: Going to live with my mom, which was a little bit weird, Um, just because when I got to the bus station, my mom was there waiting for me and the only thing she asked me was, how are you? And I was like, I'm fine. And you could visibly tell that she was there, but not really. It's like she was fading away. Her skin was so pale You could tell she was troubled. Her hair was very thin. And she was standing with my little sister. By this time she had another child, Charity. And uh, we walked to the home where she stayed. It was a one bedroom home. And uh, the, the sitting room area, the living room area was the size of a full size bed. But it has papyrus mat on the floor. And she told me, you're gonna sleep there with your sisters. And she slept in the bedroom. Now, there was something going on in my home that was really weird that was very hard for me at that age to explain. My mom would call out to my older sister, and every time she did, the first thing, every single time, it was 20 times a day, the first thing my sister would do, she would put on gloves, go inside my mother's room, and as soon as she came out, she would take these gloves off and put it in the trash, I never touched my mom, not my young sister. The only person that did was my older sister. I never understood what that was. And I remember this one day, this one day, she came out of her room and she got this dress and said, here, put this dress on. I'm taking you to church. It's 12 kilometers we are going to church right now. And she handed me these white shoes that she wore and also handed me a roll of toilet paper and I got it and I stuffed it in front of the shoes but still the shoes couldn't fit because I'd never worn shoes. (laughs) And I remember just looking at this woman. She had rashes on her arm, rashes on her legs and I doubted whether she was able to walk the 12 kilometers. And at that very moment, I realized, wow, even if I was looking at someone who was frail and weak, she had the strength that could act, would only come from Christ. We walked the 12 kilometers and we reached Kampala Baptist Church. When we got to Kampala Baptist Church, there were children playing everywhere. That was the very first time in two years where I started seeing children playing and laughing and just being kids and she went to the right-hand side, and to the left was a line of about 20 children, and she told me to line up behind. So I lined up, and as I watched, the line got shorter and shorter. Every child that came from the front of the line was smiling and laughing. I began to realize that there's actually really a miracle at the front of this line, but I didn't really know what kind of miracle it was. And then it was my turn. They gave me this rectangular board. It was a wooden rectangular board. I began to really laugh a little bit. What kind of miracle came from a rectangular board? And uh, there were letters and numbers on it. It had UG1270188. That was my compassion number. And they took a picture of me. And they took a picture of me, the very first picture they took. And they made a child packet. So just like the, the one I have with Mark, so the child packets, they really travel to different countries. My child packet ended up in Australia at Hillsong Church. And a family that was hearing about compassion being presented, they went and picked up my packet. And they signed up to sponsor me. And they wrote me my very first letter, and they said, in that letter, we love you. We love children, and we'll do everything in our power to release you from poverty in Jesus' name. And uh, they, I got to know who they are. They brought very regularly. They're originally from Holland. They're Dutch. They migrated to uh, to Australia. They have two children. They were also foster parents to two other children. My. Compassion Mom was a stay-at-home mom. And I remember her telling me um, she was a homemaker. And I replied back asking, does a homemaker make homes? (laughs) And then she had to write back and tell me what a stay-at-home mom does, the daily activities, the challenges they go through. The foster children sometimes drew for me pictures. It was really wonderful to step into their world.
0: So one of the things that really struck us when we went over there was um, how important those letters are to the the children. And they actually showed us binders that they keep every single letter that was ever written. And so I just want you to speak a little bit about that and, and share how important those letters were to you.
1: The letters were everything. The letters were everything. You see, there was so much going on in my life that I wanted something constant. And for me, it was the letters. It was through the letters that I learned that someone out there was praying for me each and every day. So every Saturday afternoon would sit in the sanctuary and then the staff member would come up front and read out names. And each time my name was read. My name was read because I had a letter. Then there were other children's names who were read as well They either had a letter or they have a new sponsor and it is my prayer that one of you if not everyone in in here your name is read as someone who was written to their child or someone who is a new sponsor you have no idea how much these children pray for you you have no idea when it's time for prayer the children will call the sponsors, sponsors by name. They will pray for your pets. Literally everything. I remember I had to share my letters with my friends because they had sponsors that didn't write as frequently as mine and then would also write and reply. And I would tell my sponsors about um, my friends as well. The letters were everything. I can't, I can't say much. I can't say enough, because it was through the letters that um, I got also discipleship. Some of them were just um, cards that had words already on them, and a lot of time it was what I really wanted to hear. And also because my mother's health began deteriorating, my gra- my. My grandparents by that time had already moved into the camp. Everyone was in the camp, literally. So they did, there was no, nowhere to go to. So as I, as I received these letters, I realized that um, my sponsors were really trying to restore the joy of salvation in my life. And I began to also realize that my mother's health was deteriorating. It, deter- it was just downhill. She was barely born, and her sister, my aunt, came at home and picked her up and took her to the hospital. And while in the hospital, my aunt, Judious, she contracted meningitis and passed away. And my mom had to be released back home, and my mom died of HIV-AIDS. I was 11. I began to ask God all sorts of questions as to really why are you punishing me, and my answers came through the letters that my compassion sponsors wrote to me, reassuring me that my mom died in Christ and that I was going to see her again one day. And as I reflect upon my first letter, I was reminded two years ago, my son Felix was seven years old. We were at an event in Albany, New York, and he told me, Mom, you always talk about poverty. What is poverty? I began to cry, and he was like, oh, did I do something? I was like, no, baby, you're fine. I'm just happy. Because that question was a fulfillment of the prophecy that my sponsors, God made through my sponsors that they would release me from poverty in Jesus' name. And therefore, that question was validation that poverty ended with me.
0: You said a few minutes ago that you were with, you had two sisters and then you had three cousins that all lived in the same after your mom died. Um, And how did that affect all of you? You were the only sponsored
1: child from Mm -hmm. Compassion. It really affected us. Um, I would say being in a Compassion program. There were sad days in that home. We had to move in to stay with them. We were eight in one home. The oldest in that home was 16. And it was that very moment we realized what the church really does or what the church is. We had the pastor come at home and pray with us. The women would bring food. The men would come help with homework. We literally had someone from the church each and every day come into our home. Now, everybody in that home was cared for. Even if it was just me in the program, we had food. Everyone had a bed. Anyone who got sick in that home was cared for. And I can say, when I was 15, and I contracted tuberculosis, I was in the hospital for a whole year. And when you look at these packets, there is the option of $45 a month, extra $7. That pool, that money goes into a pool, which is called complementary interventions. And out of that, I was able to be cared for in the hospital. And all my nutrition, all my medication was covered. And after one year, I got tested and I was completely fine. Went back to school, later on, picked up volleyball, and I got a scholarship in 2001 to play at South Carolina State University.
0: Awesome. So, Olive is currently living in Georgia, and Olive, we are so happy that you were able to make it here, and I'm so glad to get to know you this weekend and, and call you my friend. Thank you. Um, and like I said earlier, Tim and I were privileged to be able to go to Uganda this year, and while we were there, we got to meet our sponsor child, which was just an absolutely amazing, amazing uh, story. Hopefully, someday, he'll be sitting where you are. Um, but we have a small little a snippet of a video of just some of the highlights of of, of when we were in Uganda. Thank you guys. We're gonna let you, you see you. that.
1: Thank you.
2: Welcome everybody again, and welcome everybody online as well. Uh, This weekend, Compassion Weekend, which we have done almost every other year of our church's life, is my favorite weekend that we do. uh, I'm a huge believer in Compassion International. I was introduced to Compassion International when I was 14 years old. I had recently just gotten a job in my youth pastor who was a born-again hippie. How many remember the born-again hippies, the Jesus people, right? And he brought us down to a, a farm in Pennsylvania where they were doing a weekend-long music festival called Creation. And I heard the preacher talking about compassion, and 14 years old, I took a packet, and I sponsored a child, sponsored that child all through high school, all through college. Uh, and then after that, the, that kid graduated. I didn't sponsor anyone for 10 years. My wife and I got married. We started our family, and then we, sta- then we started having Compassion Weekend at the church here, and we decided that we would take a child uh, on the first weekend and then add another child on the second weekend, and then it kind of became a thing for us. Every time our church has done Compassion Weekend, Cheryl and I add a child. So, We're joining you this weekend in Compassion International Weekend at Waters Church, and we're adding child number six to our children, and it has been the greatest blessing of our lives to be a part of what this organization does. You know, you never know with Christian organizations and missions organizations are they reputable? Are they trustworthy? I can't say enough about compassion. Seeing it firsthand, going to El Salvador a few years ago, going to Uganda a couple of months ago, seeing the lives changed. It is unbelievable. 82% of your money that you give to compassion, 82% of it goes straight to that child. Gives them food, clothing, education, teaches them a skill so that they can build their own lives and become responsible, self-sustaining citizens in another country. And I was thinking about how important it is that the church wakes up to the reality that we are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are not people who just gather in a room like this once a week for an hour and then measure in our scales, in our heads, how good was the service and then go our way. How was the preaching? Did I like the guy? Was he not really up to snuff that day? Was the music not my style? Did I really feel the spirit that weekend? How was church service? And I, I think about how many people come to church in America and they go through that motion every single week. They just sit and they judge The quality of the service not realizing that America already has enough churches where people come to receive and let it stop with them. That it's time for America to find and have some churches that receive what Jesus has done for them, but then go on from that moment of receiving and become a river through which the goodness of God flows from them and through them to other people and changes the world. What good is our religion if it doesn't change people's lives? What good is this church, this building, all that God has blessed us with if we are not change agents for our local community and our regional community and the world's community? What good is theology degree? What good is theology understanding or biblical understanding if you don't make an impact in somebody else's life with the good news of Jesus? This is why I'm passionate about compassion. It's almost hard for me to control myself talking about this because of what I've seen and what I know that they're all about, and I want you to be a part of it. I want this weekend to be the weekend you either start your relationship with compassion or you expand your relationship with compassion. If you've already got a child, take another one. If you've got two, take a third. I've seen Cheryl and I's life get so blessed. The increase that God adds. Do you believe that God will take care of you? Because really that's the question you're going to answer today. Thirty-eight dollars a month. What is that? It's a cell phone bill. Less. Some of you pay 60 to 70, 80 dollars a month to let this device stream into your soul. All the nonsense of this world. And then you get stressed from the news and covetous from your Instagram feed and self-absorbed with your Twitter feed and your Facebook feed. And the funny thing is, the amazing thing is, you pay for it. You pay for that. You are giving money to get stressed and covetous. And proudful and boastful, and to join in the chorus of this self-love generation. What if you took money that you pay for your phone? I know you need your phone. I need my phone. I'm not giving this up, I understand. <laughs> But what if you took money that you're paying the same amount, even less than that, and you put it not into something that's going to feed you stress and feed you comparison and contrast and feed you selfishness and greed and lust, but something that's going to feed a starving child overseas. I uh, was thinking about Jesus, and I have some scriptures that I want to share with you. Is this moment in Matthew's gospel where he turns the tables on the disciples. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus has been healing the sick and casting out demons and doing amazing things. And uh, it says he went about all the villages and the cities, and he was teaching in their synagogues, and he was preaching to them the gospel of the kingdom. What's the gospel? The gospel is the announcement of what Jesus has done. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is not rules. The gospel is not religion. The gospel is not do this, don't do that. The gospel is here's what has been done. God sent his son 2,000 years ago to save you and to save me from sin and to put to death death and to nail our sins to the cross and bury them in the grave so that they are never held against us ever, ever, ever again. And we are free from condemnation in Christ Jesus because of what he has done. That's what the gospel is. So he's preaching the gospel. This is what I've come to do. This is what God has sent me for. This is what my father sent me for. And he's not just preaching the gospel, but look what it says. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, verse 35, last half of the verse. And it says, and he was healing What's the next word? Every. Every. Somebody say every. Every Every sickness and, say it again, every disease among the people. And I had this image in my head, this just picture in my head. When I read the Bible, I I see it happening. How cool must it have been to walk with Jesus? You ever think about that? It It was like an amusement park ride. That never ended. You never knew what he was going to do. One moment he's spitting in mud and wiping it on a blind guy's eyes and he sees. Another moment he's taking his saliva, touching a man's tongue, and the mute man can now speak. Another time there's this guy that the community didn't know what to do with because he had so many demons, so many problems, they didn't know what to do with him, so they just chained him up. He's living a life in chains, physically, literally. Nothing they could do with him. Jesus shows up and says, get out of him, and all the demons leave. And he's sitting there, saying in his right mind. I just I imagine the disciples just had this amazing experience for three years to follow this guy and just watch and see, what's he gonna do today? I just have this moment here where he's healing every disease, every sickness. There's no sickness that he can't touch and heal, there's no disease that he cannot cure. And I just see the disciples looking at him, going, jaws dropped, eyes open. What's next? And they are staring at Jesus, right? Staring. I would stare. You would stare. But then the next verse says, When he saw the multitude, this is what Jesus sees. They're staring at Jesus, and he's looking at the multitude. And he was, the Bible says, moved. With what? Compassion for them. The word in Greek is a word I cannot pronounce, but it's a word that literally means, it's colloquialism, it means that his guts churned inside. Have you ever had that experience? What have you had that experience over? Where you're? guts moved. You felt it. What does Jesus have that feeling for? Look what it says. He saw the multitudes of people because they were weary and scattered. They looked like sheep that had no shepherd. Jesus sees the need of our world, and then he feels it and then he did a little calculation in his head, Jesus, and he's realizing, I'm one. I know I'm God the Son, but I'm God in human flesh, and I'm limited to my human body at this moment, in this place. And so he turns to his disciples, who are looking at him like this. What's next? And he says, the harvest is plentiful. There's plenty of need out there. There's plenty of people that need that that have to hear what I've come to do, that have to feel what I've come to do. But the problem is, there's not enough of us. So I need you to pray something for me, he says. Pray that I will send out laborers into the harvest field. Will you pray that, will you pray? And I can see the disciples like, and they're like, okay, I guess we'll pray. And I don't have it on the screen, but the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 10, it says that he s- turns to his 12 and he gave them authority and then said go and cast out demons and heal the sick and feed and clothe and pronounce the gospel and it's amazing because he had just gotten done telling them to pray that God would do something about all the needs of the multitude and then as soon as they pray God sends somebody out there into the harvest field it's funny Jesus says now you go You be the answer to your own prayer. You be my hands and my feet. And he's saying that to our church today. You see, our culture is having a conversation right now. I don't know if you're hearing this conversation. I hear it all the time, and it aches my heart. The conversation that America is having right now is answering this question. What good is Christianity for the world. Is it any good? And you hear the stories, and I hear the the talking heads on television, and our kids go to public schools where they undermine the the validity of Christianity and the history of Christianity in the world. I I get their questions when they come home from school, being taught that Christianity has done more to enslave and more to tie people up and, and treat people wrongly and subjugate women and all this all the lies all the propaganda of the God of this world lying to our children lying to our generation and some of it's valid because Christians have done a lot of garbage over the years I understand that but we have a chance don't you see we have a chance today we have a chance to tell the world you can hate us And you can criticize us and you can disbelieve us. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna open our wallets and we're gonna help people who need food and clothing and education. You can doubt that God exists because there are starving kids in Africa. Go ahead, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna feed those starving kids in Africa because we believe our Father in heaven loves them. And we're gonna show you that Christianity is the hope of the world. I want to just close with the last story I do this compassion challenge where every year we take another child every time we do compassion weekend at our church we take another child and God has blessed us and I was thinking about where did I get the idea I got it from my friend Mark he's the regional northeast director of compassion international for America And he told me the story of one of his children that he sponsored in Tanzania she was the first child sponsored in that village in Tanzania the first one and she was six years old He sponsored her and he left, and five years go by and he comes back. And uh, he was walking into the village. As he's walking into the village, he tells me the story. This is five years later after his sponsorship starts. This large African woman, his words, this large African woman comes barreling out of the village toward him. And he's getting a little scared because of how fast she's running. And this woman comes over to Mark wraps her arms around him and he's my size and he, she picks him up <laughs> twirls him around like he's a little girl and throws him back down on the ground he's like who are you <laughs> and she said I'm Asda's grandma and because of your sponsorship of that child this whole village has changed you know what she said she said before compassion got here Women were property and had no rights and no education and no freedoms. She said the rule in that village was women were shared among the men. And so if you came home after a long days of work in the field as a man, you would come home. If there was a spear sticking out of the ground in front of your tent door, That was a signal that another man from the village had decided to take your wife for the night, and you had to find lodging elsewhere. That was the rule. Anybody wants to tell me that Christianity is bad for society? Listen up. Because because of Asda's sponsorship through Mark, she became a Christian. Her family became a Christian. Her grandma became a Christian. She was the one who raised her. Her mom had left after her father died of AIDS. And then because of Asda's changed life, because of her education, because of what compassion did for her, the tribal chief came to Jesus. And in that culture, if the tribal chief does something, everybody does it. So the whole village came to Jesus. And Asda's grandmother was so overjoyed that day that within five years what had happened was the whole village came to Christ, and all the women had been given their rights and their freedoms, education, clothing, schooling, trades, skills, freedoms. Men married and stayed married to one woman, one woman to one man, and the culture made a huge comeback and rebound, and they were a prosperous village, a happy village, a joyful village. That's the difference that the gospel can make in a society. That's what Christianity does. But how will the world know? How will America know? How will post-Christian America ever wake up to the reality that Jesus is the answer? I'm going to tell you how. When we do what Jesus told us to do, to be his feet, to be his hands, to be the people that don't just come and receive and judge the service for how good the message was or how off the message was, but to say, I believe that Christ changed my life and it's my job to change somebody else's. So you have a chance today, not just to change a child, but to possibly change an entire village. That's what Mark's packet did. What will yours do? What will yours do? And and when at the end of your life, your breaths are getting further apart, and you know your end has come, and your eyes close to the chaos that is this age, and open at the pearly gates, Will you have an Asda's grandmother waiting to see you and say thank you?